Good morning again. I read the story this week of a church um, that that held an impromptu um, nativity scene. Um, it, it happened within a Sunday school class, and and the teachers read the the story of the birth of Christ to the kids, and then they stepped back and they let the kids reenact what they heard. And and one girl, she grabbed a doll and she said, "I'll be Mary." Another boy raised his hand and he said, I'll be Joseph. Uh, uh, some, some found bathrobes in the classroom and they put those on and said, we'll be the shepherds. And then the rest of the kids played the parts of sheep or wise men or an angel or the innkeeper. But one little girl had no part. So she said, I'll play the doctor that delivers Jesus. So they all took their places and, and, and Mary, she had, um, you know, the baby Jesus kind of up in her stomach and everything. And, 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 and Joseph led Mary to the house of the innkeeper. And that mean innkeeper said, there's no room for y'all here. And, and they, they went on from there and they found the place where Jesus would be born. And when the time came for Jesus to be delivered, the doctor took that baby from, from Mary and held it up in the, um, in the air, and Joseph, being kind of a smart kid, yells out, what is it, doc? And the little girl says, it's God. Oh, that people would recognize at Christmas that indeed Jesus is God in the flesh. This morning, we are continuing our sermon series entitled, The Wonder of Christmas. Over the past several weeks, we have looked at the importance of having an audacious hope, having a reassuring peace, having an everlasting love. And now this morning, we're going to look at having an embracing love. Our message point this morning is, God demonstrated his great love for us by coming down and dwelling amongst us and dying for us. What we're going to look at this morning is we're going to look at the virgin birth. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Isaiah chapter 7. We're going to begin reading in the latter part of verse 9, and we'll read through verse 14 together. So Isaiah chapter 7, beginning in the latter part of verse 9, we read, If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. When you read the biblical birth account of Jesus, you and I certainly should be left in awe and wonder, shouldn't we? God came down. He left heaven full of all of its glory, and he came down and dwelt among us. He, and he chose as his entry point into this world the womb of a virgin. Notice our first point this morning. We're going to look at a wicked king. If there was ever someone who needed saving, it was the wicked king Ahaz. We have spent a lot of time um, in the book of Isaiah throughout this sermon series. 
And, and one thing that, that people say about Isaiah is that Isaiah is the fifth gospel because Isaiah spoke so much words of prophecy about the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we see that this morning. Isaiah was a prophet during a very dark time within human history. He would be tasked with telling the people of God over and over and over again that they needed to turn from their sins and embrace the Lord God. If they failed to repent, what was coming? Judgment, right? Desolation and eventually enslavement would come their way. Ahaz would be king of Judah around the year 735 BC, and he would rule for approximately 20 years. Over the course of his life, he would do much evil in the sight of the Lord. He would bring much evil into the land of promise. He would fill the land with idols, he would decimate part of the temple, and he even sacrificed some of his own children. Gives you a glimpse of just how evil this man was. Well, in Isaiah chapter 7, Ahaz is at the beginning of his reign. And right from the beginning, his kingdom is in danger of being overtaken. The king of Israel and the king of Syria, they seek to mount an attack against Judah. Because they need Judah. They need King Ahaz to join forces with them if they stood any chance against the Assyrians who would come and, and decimate the land of Israel in a matter of about 15 or so years. But before this attack occurred, the Lord would appear to Isaiah and instruct Isaiah to go to see Ahaz and to tell him that there is indeed a clear path to victory. In verse 11, we read, Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol or as high of heaven as heaven. Before this wicked king's true colors would be revealed, he is given the chance of a lifetime. He can ask of the Lord anything he wants, as high as heaven or as deep as the, the, the middle part of this earth. He can ask the God of the universe for a sign to see if everything would be okay. Think about that. Anything he wanted to ask, he could have asked. But what this godless king does is he kind of plays the holier-than-thou card. He's like, oh, I'm not going to put the Lord God to a test. I'm not about to ask him. In verse 12 we read, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. And now at first glance, this may seem like the biblical answer, which it would obviously be the biblical answer. But remember, Ahaz was a godless king that certainly did not follow the Lord. Let me ask you a question this morning. Have you ever wanted God to give you a sign? Have you ever wanted God to let you know that everything was going to be okay? Have you ever wanted God to show you if you should walk through door A or door B or door C? Raise your hand if you've ever wanted to do that. I think most of us in this room have probably wanted to do that, right? We want to know the, the, the end of the story. Some of you, man, you pick up a book and you don't start in chapter 1. You read the last page to see how it's going to end. And then you start at the beginning. Well, Ahaz is kind of given that chance. He's given the chance to look at the last page of the story to see how everything's going to end up. 
Before Isaiah would give King Ahaz permission to ask for a sign, he first spoke these words found in verse 9. He said, if you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. Brian Bill points out that this verse is actually a pun in Hebrew that can be translated like this. If there is no belief, you will find no relief. In fact, the devil would use King Ahaz to turn the hearts of many, many people away from God and turn them so, uh, so that they would begin to pursue the idols of the surrounding nations. Even though the king did not want a sign, Isaiah would provide him with one anyway. And the sign would come in the form of a virgin giving birth to a son who would be given the name Emmanuel, God with us. Notice our next point. It is this, an unmatched conception. In verses 13 and 14, again, we read, and he said, hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Notice the first word in that last sentence, behold. This word is used to announce things that are considered, considered startling or important or wonderful or amazing. If you ever go to a circus, you might hear the, 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 the master ringleader say, behold, or something like that. And that's what Isaiah is doing here. Man, he is announcing something that is going to revolutionize and transform human history forever. He tells the king that a virgin shall conceive. I don't know if you realize this or not, but there are many, many, many people that do not believe in the virgin birth. And many of them sit in our churches and claim to be believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, throughout the church age, there have been countless people that have sought to discredit the virgin birth. Why would they do that? Why would someone seek to discredit the virgin birth? Because according to science, virgins don't give birth, right? Ray Pritchard shares that 90 plus years ago, controversy over the virgin birth actually tore the church apart. Liberals denied it. Conservatives defended it. Liberals called it an unnecessary, irrational doctrine. Harry Emerson, a theologian, said, Of course I do not believe in the virgin birth. I don't know any intelligent minister who does. I mean, think about that. In case you wonder if such views still exist amongst theologians today, let me update you, and some of you are familiar with this group called the Jesus Seminar. This was a group of so-called biblical scholars that set out to determine if the words spoken by Jesus in the Gospels were true or not. This group... Um, began meeting regularly to try to determine um, which words Jesus spoke and which ones he didn't. They voted on the sayings and teachings of Christ using colored balls. A black ball represented a statement that they said was absolutely not true. A pink ball meant that it probably was true. A red ball meant that it was most likely true. But believe it or not, this group of so-called biblical scholars blackballed the virgin birth as a legend 
and one that has no historical validity. You and I may think that those that do not believe in the virgin birth are in the minority. They are still in the minority amongst evangelical believers. But again, that number is rapidly changing. In 2014, 73% of so-called evangelical believers believed in the virgin birth. In 2017, that number was down to 66%. I couldn't find a recent number, but you can be certain that that number is probably even lower today. A few years ago, a very prominent pastor at one of the largest churches in the country based out of Atlanta said that Christianity does not hinge on the virgin birth. He was making a point that a person did not have to believe in the virgin birth as an absolute truth. Well, I want you to know I disagree completely with that man. To say that Christianity does not hinge on the virgin birth is to discredit the words found within the pages of God's Word. Here in Isaiah, what does Isaiah predict would happen? He, had, he predicted that, 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 that Christ would come into the world via the womb of a virgin. If he was not born of a virgin, then God's Word is not true and accurate. But we know that God's Word is absolutely true and accurate. I hope you know that, and I hope you believe that. Paul would write to Timothy these words, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete for every good work. In Hebrews chapter 4, we read, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the divisions of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from the sight, but all are, are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. God's word is true, my friends. From the opening pages to the closing pages, everything found within God's word is true. What happened or what 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 happened happened, right? What is predicted will happen. There is no Christianity without the virgin birth. There is no forgiveness of sin without the virgin birth. There is no Christmas Christmas without the virgin birth. There would be no resurrection of Christ from the grave had not Christ been born of a virgin. Notice next, an unmatched son. In verses, um, in the latter part of verse 14, we read, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. The son born to bear Mary would be no ordinary son. According to critics and skeptics, Jesus was an extraordinary man, but he was not born by extraordinary means. That is a false statement, isn't it? Jesus was no ordinary son. He was the son of God. And Jesus spoke these words about himself in John three sixteen: For God so loved the world that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish but have everlasting life life. Jesus came down and he dwelt among us. The creator of the universe left heaven and came and dwelt among us. In John chapter 1, 14, we read, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. And as, as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth, Jesus was no ordinary son. 
He was fully God and he was fully man. I love what David Platt says. He said, the incarnation, the doctrine of Jesus, full humanity and full deity is the most extraordinary miracle in all the Bible, in all the Bible. You think about it. If this is true, if Jesus is fully man and fully God, all of the other miracles in the gospel of Matthew make total sense. I mean, really, is it that strange to believe? Is it that far-fetched to believe that he is walking on water when you realize he created the water? Is it that strange to believe that he's able to feed over 5,000 people with five loaves and two fish when you realize he created the stomachs of every single person that he is feeding? Is it really that outlandish to believe that he rose from the dead? He is God. What is really hard to believe is that he died in the first place. That's what's overwhelming. Once we accept the reality of incarnation, everything else begins to make sense. God had a plan to save humanity, and it involved his son. God had a plan to, that would restore humanity's relationship with him, and it involved his son. God had a plan to bring new life through rebirth, and it involved his son. God loved you so much that he changed biology so that you and I could experience his love, his grace, his mercy, and his redemption. This is significant. This is why you and I celebrate Christmas. We celebrate Christmas because we fully understand that there is nothing more significant in all of human history than the day that Jesus left heaven and came and dwelt among us. Notice next, we, we see an unmatched name. Again, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. In biblical times, names had great meaning. A family would give their child a name that had purpose, significance, and value. How many of you pick biblical names for your kids because you recognize the significance behind that name? How many of you did that? Okay, a couple of you in this room did that. But most of us in this room did not. Most of us named our children after a father or mother or relative. Maybe we liked the name that we saw that an actor had or a sports hero or simply because we heard it and liked it and we went with it. Danny named both of our kids, Connor and Caitlin. I think she did a pretty good job, but they don't really have biblical significance behind their name. But in biblical times, names meant something. The name given to our Lord had significant meaning. What does Emmanuel mean? It means God with us. What does that mean? It means that Jesus came and dwelt among us. When Jesus left heaven and ascended back to his rightful seat at the right hand of the throne of God, he sent the Holy Spirit who today dwells within us. Because of this, we can know that he can relate to anything and everything that we are experiencing. For we do not have a high priest, we read in Hebrews 4, who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who is ev in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Our God is with us. Our God knows us. Our God can relate 
to what we are going through. In Romans 8, 31, Paul wrote, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Think about that. The Lord understands you. He sympathizes with you. He knows your hurts and my hurts. He knows your pains and my pains. He knows your fears and my fears. He knows our weaknesses, and he can identify with us. Everything that we go through today, the Lord experienced when he came and took on flesh and dwelt among us. In Matthew chapter 8, verse 17, we read, This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illness and bore our diseases. The same God that provided manna from heaven, healed the sick and raised the dead. Same God that gave the law to the Israelites and the word to us. The same God that closed the mouth of lions and appeared before Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego while they were in that fiery furnace. Gave David the strength to defeat Goliath. Gideon the strength to defeat the Midianites. Isaiah the strength to stand before kings and world leaders and boldly preach the word of God. The same God that came and dwelt among us and, and walked and taught the, the disciples. He, he is with us today. He walked amongst them. He walked amongst us, but we know that he did not stay among us. He would die for us so that all of us who have come to faith in him could dwell with him for all of eternity. In closing this morning, notice our final point. It is this, an unmatched way. In Matthew chapter 1, in verses 18 through 23, we read these words. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these sayings, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to, to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Jesus came and dwelt among us. He would live a perfect life, never, ever committing a sin. He would die a criminal's death in our place on the cross. His lifeblood was shed to provide a covering for our sins, to provide a way for all of us in this room to be forgiven of our sins. He would be placed in a borrowed tomb, but that tomb could not hold him. Three days after his death, he rose to life again. He was victorious over death, proving to the world and to us that indeed he was God in the flesh who came to dwell among us. And in, in, in Philippians chapter 2, we read these words, he gave this mind among yourself, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself 
by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, to the point even to death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. One day, every single person that has ever been given the breath of life will confess with their mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord. For some, this will occur on this side of eternity. And because we have professed Christ as Lord and Savior of our lives, we shall dwell with the Father for all of eternity. Other though, though they will choose to deny Jesus on this side of eternity. And the consequences of their denial will be a lifetime separated from the Lord in a real place called hell. But know this, even those that die, having never professed Christ to be Lord and Savior of their life, we are told in this passage of Scripture that they too, within the depths of this earth, will confess Jesus as Lord and Savior. For the unbeliever, it will be too late. Do not wait until it's too late to enter into an eternal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Do not think that there are multiple ways that lead to heaven, because there isn't. There's one way, and that is through Jesus. John 14, 6, what did Jesus say? I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes unto the Father except through me. There's one way to God the Father, that is through God the Son. God the Son loved each and every one of us so much that he came and dwelt among us and died for us. Let me encourage you this morning, if you do not have a relationship with Jesus, to repent of your sins today and turn to him and follow him. In John chapter 15, Jesus said these words, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. We know what Jesus would do. He would lay down his life for his disciples, and he would lay down his life for each and every one of us in this room. To the unbeliever this morning, let me encourage you to have an accepting love this morning. Accept the love of God that he demonstrated and has made available to you. For the believer, let's have an embracing love. Let's go to those outside of the doors of this church and show them what love looks like. Sacrificial love. Let's show them that kind of love. You may be here this morning and, and, and you may be struggling with your relationship with the Lord. You may, you may this morning... Um, Think to yourself, man, I've been in church all of my life, but I've never, ever entered into an eternal relationship with Jesus Christ. If that is you, I want to invite you this morning to make the greatest decision that you could ever make. Let's stand together. I'm going to lead us in a time of prayer. And if there's a decision you need to make, you come. Let's pray together. Father God, we come before you this morning thanking you for loving us. Thanking you, Father, for for coming and dwelling among us. Thank you, Father, for coming, being born of a virgin. Some people don't think that's significant. 
but it was vital that you come this way. It was vital that you were, were, were born of a virgin. Because by being born of a virgin, you were not born as we were in this room. You were not born a sinner at birth. You were born perfect at birth, and you remain perfect all the way through your life. It was because you were perfect that you were able to go to the cross and for us. Father, I pray this morning that if there's someone in this place that does not have a relationship with you, that today they will have an embracing love. They will recognize your great love for them. That they will confess you today as Lord and Savior of their life. Father, I pray for every believer in this room that each of us will have an embracing love that we go outside the doors of this church showing other people what love looks like. Father, move now during this time of invitation.